Let's pray and we'll ask God for his help. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this letter to the Corinthians. We pray that as we look now at this passage in chapter 5 that you will help us to understand what Paul was saying to the Corinthians and what this means for us now. Help us to be brave in putting into practice uh, what, we, what we read and what we learn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever seen this bumper sticker? I'm not perfect, just forgiven. That's true, isn't it? As Christians, we are not perfect. We all sin in many ways. What we are is forgiven by Jesus. Jesus died in our place. He bore our sin in himself on that cross. So now when we rely on Jesus, God forgives us and accepts us as his people. This is fundamental Christianity. We are not perfect, just forgiven. Or here's a saying that's a bit similar. A church is a hospital for sinners, not a club for saints. Now, as far as the Bible is concerned, we are saints. God has set us apart as his holy people, his saints. But you get the vibe of what this is saying, don't you? A church should not be a place where holier-than-thou holier than people congregate to congratulate themselves on how nice we all are. No, no, church should be a community that welcomes sinners. In church, we should, be, we should be real with each other in acknowledging our failure. We should help each other in our struggles, open, accountable, a hospital for sinners, not a club for saints. Thanks, Caleb. So, for example, a while ago, a man came to me. He said, uh, he said I'm currently divorcing my wife and I'm having an affair with someone else. A, a friend invited me to your church. Am I welcome to come? Or I had another man call me just, uh, just a few weeks ago. He said, I'm a homosexual. Am I welcome in your church? What would you have said? For my part, I said, you are absolutely welcome in our church. Now, I didn't specifically say church is a hospital for sinners, not a club for saints. Um, <laughs> but, but that's the sort of thing I was thinking. I was thinking church is exactly the place where you should be. I mean, Jesus himself had a reputation for this, didn't he? We saw it in our reading a moment ago. People kept grumbling that he welcomed and hung around with sinners. Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. Church is not a club for saints, but a hospital for sinners. These are important truths. But they can be misinterpreted. And it seems that something like that was happening in the church in Corinth in the first century. Now, so far we've seen in the letter, uh, do you remember Paul got this, uh, a report from a group of people, the household of Chloe. Um, they, they were telling Paul about some divisions in the church and Paul's been dealing with them for the first few chapters. But that wasn't the only report that Chloe's family brought to Paul. In chapter 5, Paul moves on to a, another thing that he heard. Uh, there was a man in the church who was sleeping with his father's wife. We don't know if the father was dead or alive. We don't know if the father and woman were divorced or not, but either way, the man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, as Paul says, um, even, even the non-Christians of the day said that this was unacceptable. It was illegal. Uh, so, for example, the Roman jurist Gaius wrote, It is illegal for a man to marry a woman who has at any time been his stepmother. Even the secular society 
wouldn't accept this kind of sin. But the thing is this, the church are tolerating the situation. In fact, more than that, Paul says, they're proud about it. Now, why would they have been proud about it? Why would they have been proud to have such a, an overt sinner in their midst? Well, maybe people were saying, hey, we Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven. Church isn't a club for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. Jesus welcomes sinners, and so do we. It's fantastic that this man is part of our church. We want to we put him up on a pedestal because he is a picture of God's grace. This man is a fine example of how we're not, we're not Pharisees. No, no, we rejoice in the forgiveness that's ours in Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, have a look with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. Paul says, wrong response. He says, you should not be proud about this. He says they should do something else. Now, the NIV is quite fixated on making this passage about excommunication, as you can see from the heading that they put on there. Uh, The NIV translates this as grieve and put the man out of fellowship. So in other words, the church should excommunicate the person, kick him out of the church. Uh, Continuing in verse 2, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? That's the NIV's angle. But let me give you a very literal translation. If you've got God on your telephone there, you can look up, for example, the New American Standard Bible and you'll see this reflected. But I've put a very literal translation on your outline there. Should you not rather mourn in order that he may be removed or lifted from your midst, the one who did this? Now, notice a couple of things about this very literal translation because it's different to the NIV. Notice the Corinthians are only called to to do one thing. They're not called to do two things. They're called to do only one thing. They're commanded to mourn. There is no actual command to remove anyone or to put anyone out of fellowship. Notice, with the removing or the lifting out of their midst, there's no subject. For those of you who are into grammar, this is a passive verb. And it doesn't say who has to do the removing. So, is it the Corinthians, like the NIV suggests? Maybe. Maybe the the church should mourn and this will then lead the congregation or the leadership to excommunicate the person. But that's not the only alternative. Uh, Historically, some people have said that we should read God as the subject. It's very often the case with passive verbs in the Bible that you assume that God is the subject. So as the Corinthians mourn about the man and his sin, uh, these people say that God will remove him from their midst. Uh, Maybe that's right. But I think it's most likely that Paul means this. As the Corinthians mourn for this man and his sin, as they say, it's not okay that you're doing this, we, 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 we grieve that you're doing this, the man will remove himself. The man will see that his behaviour is unacceptable and he will either change his behaviour or else leave the church. What's clear is this. The Corinthians should not be rejoicing about having a sinner like this in their midst. They shouldn't be acting as if it's appropriate or acceptable for any Christian to behave like that. They should be mourning about this behaviour. Paul then calls for another form of action. Uh, Paul's judgment is that this man is acting wrongly and he wants the church 
which he considers to be his church, to make the same call. Now, as we saw back in chapter 3, the church is the temple of God's Holy Spirit. By his spirit, through his son, God calls all of us Christians into his presence. And so there's a real sense in which we're all united. Uh, Even if we're not in the same church as each other, we're still united uh, in the presence of God, drawn to the presence of God through Jesus in the power of the spirit. And that means that Paul, even though he wasn't physically present with the Corinthians, is united with them. He's part of their church. And so as part of their church, Paul calls on the Corinthians to deal with this sinner. He says, I want you to have a church meeting. And I want you to hand the man over to Satan. That means that his flesh, NIV translates sinful nature, his flesh will be destroyed, but the hope is that his spirit will be saved on judgment day. Verse 3. Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you literally in the spirit. I think you should have a capital S. And I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I'm with you in the spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Now again, it's hard to know exactly what it means to hand a person over to Satan. Um, Historically, in church history, probably the most common view is uh, that, that people believe that it refers to executing people. Uh, which practically has meant handing people over to the civil authorities for execution. That way their flesh, their body is destroyed, but hopefully the person will repent. So in this case, the man is in breach of Roman law and the church should hand him over to the authorities to face the consequences of his action. Of course, there are thousands of examples of that sort of thing happening in church history. Most of them not examples that are terribly uh, good examples. You only need to think of English church history, especially during the times of uh, Mary or uh, Elizabeth or either of the Charleses, hopefully not the next Charles. Lots and lots of people were handed over to the authorities for their heresies or their sins and terrible things happened to them, burned at the stake and so on. Uh, That's a common view of what it means to hand people over to Satan so their flesh is destroyed but their spirit saved. Other people have argued that this again refers to some kind of excommunication so the person is thrown out of the church into the realm of Satan. Uh, My suspicion though is that handing the person over to Satan means the church making a public declaration that that this man is not acting like a Christian. Uh, The man's sin is very public so the remedy needs to be very public. So at this meeting the church will say... The way that you are acting is not acceptable for a genuine Christian. Because of the way you are acting, we declare that you are of Satan and not of Jesus. Uh, The hope is that this will bring the person to repentance. Uh, So they put to death their flesh, and I think the NIV is right in talking about sinful nature here, so the person puts to death their sinful nature, come back to faith and are saved. Again, whatever the action is, the point is clear enough, The church must not tolerate the man's sin. They need to call him on it. Now in the next section, Paul shows why the Corinthians shouldn't be tolerating sin in their church. And there are two reasons. The first reason reason is that tolerating sin in one person encourages other people to sin. Tolerated sin is like yeast that works its way through dough. If a church is happy to accept sin, soon everyone will be happily sinning. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? 
Tolerated sin is like a cancer. It spreads, it's infectious, it's contagious, damaging. But there's an even more foundational issue. And Paul sticks with the image of yeast to get this across. Very rich imagery. That's, let, me, let me give you a little bit of background to help you understand the imagery of what he's saying, what he's about to say. In Jewish tradition, they have, a, they have what's called a Passover feast. It's a time when Jews remember how God rescued them out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land. And maybe you remember the story. Um, the, the angel of death passed through Egypt and killed all of their firstborn sons. What the Israelites had to do, they would sacrifice a lamb, Passover lamb for each family, smear blood on the doorposts of their houses, and then the angel of death passed over the houses with the blood rather than through the houses so that the firstborn son was saved. Paul says, Jesus is our Passover lamb. In other words, his death on the cross was a sacrifice for us so that God's judgment will pass over us so that we can be set free from slavery, not not to Egypt, but to sin and death. So we can be brought to the promised land, not to Canaan, but to the new heaven and earth. Each year, the Jews used to reenact the Passover. They'd have a big feast, and as part of the feast, they would get rid of all yeast from their houses. Now, originally, that was meant to uh, be a way of remembering that, that they had to leave Egypt in a hurry, But in Jewish tradition, yeast became a a symbol of sin or evil. Here in Corinthians, Paul picks up on that image. He says, we Christians, we need to get rid of the yeast of wickedness in our lives. Jesus was sacrificed to save us from sin. Jesus wasn't sacrificed so that we can live in sin. He sacrificed, he, he, he he, he died to save us from sin, not for sin. He was sacrificed so we can live as God's holy people. And so Paul says to the Christians, I want you to keep the Jesus Passover feast by turning away from wickedness. We should keep the Jesus Passover feast by living lives of transparent and sincere godliness. Verse 6. Get rid of the old yeast that you may... may that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, it's very rich in imagery, isn't it? But you get the idea. Jesus died for us so so we can be forgiven, saved from the judgment of God. That does not mean we should now live in sin. No, no, he saved us from sin so we should be striving to turn away from sin and live as God's holy people Christians must not boast about sin as if it's good or acceptable and churches must not tolerate sin as if it doesn't matter sin is not something to be proud of no way sin is like a cancer it will spread through a church destroy a church that tolerates it and second Jesus died to save us from sin we need to turn away from it serve our saviour Now, in this last section, uh, Paul clarifies a possible misunderstanding. Uh, in a previous letter to the Corinthians, a letter that unfortunately we don't have, Paul, Paul had told them to not get mixed up with sexually immoral people. Now, that word I translated to, to get mixed up with, NIV translates it to associate with, it's a word that you can find in the Old Testament prophets, uh, in the prophets Ezekiel and Hosea. And they used it as a way of speaking about how Israel was getting mixed up with the nations around them. 
making treaties with them, joining with them in their idolatry. Paul had warned the Corinthians, don't get mixed up with sexually immoral people. But now he clarifies. He says, I'm not talking about people outside the church. Otherwise, you, you never do anything. No, no, that's not what I meant. He says, what I, meant, what I mean is you shouldn't get mixed up with people who are claiming to be Christians but openly sinning. You shouldn't get mixed up with people who say it's fine for Christians to sin. In fact, Paul says, don't even eat with people like that. Verse 9. I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slander, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. Now again, uh, NIV and some people take this to mean that we should excommunicate people or maybe put them in Coventry, you know, ignore them or something like that. But it's interesting, the only other time in the New Testament when Paul uses this word not to get mixed up with people, not to associate with people, he specifically says, I don't mean treat them like an enemy, but warn them as a brother. That's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Again, I don't think this is talking about excommunication or putting people in Coventry or anything. I think it's, I think it's about making, making clear to people that their behaviour is unacceptable. Uh, first, you don't get mixed up with them in their sin. You, you don't join in with them as if, as if that's fine. And Paul says you don't even eat with them. Now, eating with people in those days, it was a way of showing that you're in fellowship, that you're on the same page as each other. Paul says... You're not on the same page as each other. It is not okay for Christians to sin. Don't pretend everything is fine. Paul explains further about the difference between people inside and outside the church. He says it's not up to us to, to, to call on non-Christians to live as God's holy people. We need to leave them in God's hands. No, no, it's up to us to call each other to live as God's holy people. Verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Uh, Paul finishes with a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7. Uh, NIV translates, expel the wicked man from among you. But interestingly, back in Deuteronomy 17, 7, they translate exactly the same words as, you must purge the evil from among you. Uh, the quote actually refers to stoning people to death. It's got nothing to do with excommuting anybody. Um, but what Paul is saying is that as Christians, we need to be removing sin, removing wickedness, not tolerating it, not boasting about it, getting rid of it. Uh, so NIV says, expel the wicked man, but it should be wickedness from among you. Okay. Can you see what's here in this passage? Uh, Paul received this report. A bloke was sleeping with his stepmother and the church is proudly tolerating it. Paul says, wrong response. You should not be tolerating sin. Two reasons. First, the whole point of Jesus dying for us is, is, to, is to turn us away from sin so we live as God's holy people. And second, tolerated sin is infectious. The church must not tolerate sin. Instead, Paul says the church should be mourning sin. They should be refusing to get mixed up with people who think it's fine for Christians to sin. And the Corinthians, they need to call this man to account. Tell him it's not okay to do what you're doing. And then depending on how you read the passage, they need to throw him out of the church or maybe even hand him over to the authorities for execution. 
All right. What do we do with this passage? How should we apply it? Well, as we thought about at the beginning, the reality is we are all sinners. We are not perfect, just forgiven. And church should be a hospital for sinners, not a club for saints. We should welcome and include sinners. We must not fall into legalistic pride. We need to be like Jesus who welcomed sinners, not like the Pharisees who looked down on them. But in the light of this passage, that's not all there is to it, is there? Yes, we should welcome and include sinners. But that doesn't mean we should leave people or leave each other unchallenged. As Christians, we are sinners, but we should be repentant sinners. We should be the sort of people who want to love and serve our gracious saviour, Jesus. And so as a church, we need to not just be leaving each other alone or or tolerating each other or, or, or even encouraging each other in sin. No, no, no. What we need to be doing is helping each other, calling each other to account. We need to name sin for what it is. And we need to say, it's not all right for people who believe in Jesus. Here's what we need to do. We need to both welcome sinners and also call sinners to repentance. Did you get that? We need to do both. Welcome sinners and also call sinners to repentance. What's that going to mean? It's going to mean lots of different things in lots of different contexts. It might mean you plucking up your courage and speaking to your friend in private your friend who you're worried about. For, for example, your friend who's working all the time. It might mean saying to them, brother, sister, are you working too hard? Is it because you're being greedy? Are you neglecting your responsibilities to your family and to your friends and to your church in this insatiable pursuit of your ambition and your career? That'd be a hard conversation, wouldn't it? Maybe somebody needs you to say it to them. I've had, I've had lots of experiences like this over the years. I've had to challenge numerous people about numerous different things. Um, people who've told me they're leaving their marriages, examples of domestic violence in our church, people involved in sexual sin, people who've been slandering others. I have to say I've had very mixed results as I've tried to call people to account. Um, uh, some people have told me to go jump in the lake, to put it politely. Uh, they've, they've left our church. Um, other people have, have repented and changed their behaviour. Other people have kept struggling along on a few occasions. Uh, People have told me I'm not going to change and I'm also not going anywhere. I'm staying in the church. Uh, So I've had to go to the elders. Uh, Again, the results have been mixed. Uh, Despite the fact that when you sign on to become a member, you promise, you agree to be subject to the discipline of the session. Uh, Not everybody actually does that. Uh, So when session have have been brought in, some people have changed, uh, but some people have also left the church and a couple of people have been asked to step down from positions of leadership. Uh, in my time at Chatswood so far, we haven't had any situation where we've had to involve the whole church, although I, I was involved in a situation just uh, a couple of months ago in another church where I had to stand before the whole church and announce uh, the sin of a, of a very significant person in that church, um, but I haven't had to do it here. I guess a day may come where we will need to tell somebody that they're not welcome here. That'll be a very sad day, but it may be that the day will come when a person is creating so much damage with their unrepentant sin that we've just got to say, sorry, just you can't be with us. 
I guess there may also come a day when we need to hand someone over to the authorities for their crime to be appropriately dealt with. And in fact, there are set rules now in our denomination for when this needs to happen. But one thing we've got to remember from this passage, and this is crucial, this is crucial. We've got to have the goal clear in our minds. Whatever we do, the goal is not to purify our church. The goal is not to protect ourselves. The goal is not to, 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 to show ourselves superior to anybody else. No, no, the goal must be repentance and restoration. What does Paul say? You want the person's spirit saved on the day of the Lord. We want to see people saved. The goal is to help each other to stick with Jesus and make it to the end. Yes, we are not perfect, but forgiven. Yes, this is a hospital for sinners, not a club for saints, but sin is not okay. So we need to both welcome sinners and also call sinners to repentance. Now, I don't normally tell success stories. Generally speaking, I try to tell you stories that, uh, where you see my failure, but let me, let me indulge just this one time. <laughs> let me tell you one time where I think we got this right. Many years ago, a couple came to our church. Uh, neither of them were Christians. They were living together but not married. Uh, but the man's mum had made him promise to go to church. So they came to see me, asked if they were welcome. I said, you are absolutely welcome. We would love to have you at church, but I need to tell you, you're going to be challenged here. You're going to be challenged to put your faith in Jesus and you're going to be challenged about the way you're living. Uh, they came. About a year down the track, the man was converted, became a Christian. He thought that they should get married. Talked about that for a while, agreed that it was probably the best thing to do. So a few weeks later, we, uh, so we started marriage preparation and then a few weeks later they arrived at a marriage preparation session and said, Jeff, we've just found out that we're pregnant. It's pretty embarrassing in front of our family and everything. So we, we think we should abort the baby and uh, what do you think? I said, no, God has given you this precious baby. You should love your baby, you should welcome your baby and our church will love and welcome your baby. There is nothing to be embarrassed about. We will love your baby no matter what the circumstances. We brought the wedding forward. Uh, the man kept on, they got married, the man kept on growing as a Christian. Their, their child, their son was born. Uh, then a couple of years later, the wife was converted as well. Both husband and wife were discipled here. They got involved in Bible study. They had more children. And by the time they left our church, they were both mature Christians serving Jesus in lots of ways and have gone to another church now far away where, um, where, where they're being a great blessing to people. Like I say, we don't always get it right. Uh, I think there are occasions where we've been legalistic and heavy-handed in the way we've dealt with people. I think far more often we've been wimpish and we, we tolerate sin so as to avoid conflict. But that was one time I think we got it mostly right. Welcoming sinners but calling them to repentance. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you because you love us so much that you don't just forgive us and leave us, but you forgive us and work in us by your Holy Spirit to transform us into the people you want us to be. And we thank you that you don't call us alone to be Christians, but you call us into a church where we can help each other to live the Christian life. We pray, Heavenly Father, for ourselves as a church that you would help us to help each other to trust Jesus and live sincerely for him. Please work in us by your spirit and we pray that you would please bring on that day when you transform us by your spirit so that we are without sin, uh, living perfectly for you and loving and praising you forever. Bring on the day, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.